kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Now, if you are in the clutch of all this political nonsense, you may be one of those who, like me, is just trying to escape. Uh, actually, uh, yes, my strategic retreat is usually to the movies. Uh, I wanted to tell you that just at this moment, you're missing none but the lonely heart on Turner classic movies. God isn't dead. She just gone to the movies. That's where I need to go to. What is that? Give me, give me courage to, anyway, to learn, to understand that, of course, it's all just a vision, just a dream. Uh, as I was putting myself together to come to the radio station. I couldn't resist. I I grabbed a copy of Mark Twain's The Mysterious Stranger. First thing I need to do today is to just read you a, a little a little snippet of Mark Twain's Mysterious Stranger because it helps me to understand the well, Mark Twain's existential crisis at the end of his life. He was a little bit down. Uh, the novel is about uh, a boy, the mysterious stranger. He is actually Satan. He represents Satan. Uh, and he comes to uh, explain humanity to three boys, 16th century boys. Uh, <laughs> yes, I I think this this book came to me when I was 17, and I, I, I found it shocking at first. I hadn't been acquainted with, uh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, despair, let's call it. Uh, anyway, uh, it's all about this vision, yes. This fallen angel, call him Lucifer, Satan, and he takes the boys, three young boys, think of Tom Sawyer, Huckle Finn, you know, Huck Finn, and then uh, Huckleberry Finn in the uh, 19th century mind of Mark Twain. Uh, Satan takes these boys, uh, shows them witch hunts and shows them the awesome Christian hypocrisy of uh, 
our communities. Uh, Satan helps these boys see a truth or two, and at the end, he has to go away because he's got bigger fish to fry. Uh, let me read you this uh, coda, this ending to this fabulous, this fabulous little novel. For as much as a year, Satan continued with his visits. But at last he came less often, and then, for a long time, he did not come at all. This always made me lonely and melancholy. I felt that he was losing interest in our tiny world. And he might at any time abandon his visits entirely, and then one day he finally came to me. I was overjoyed, but... Only for a little while, he had come to say goodbye, he told me, and for the last time. He had investigations and undertakings in other corners of the universe, he said, that would keep him busy for a longer period than I could wait for his return. And you're going away and will not come back anymore, I asked. Yes, he said. We have comraded long together, and it has been pleasant, pleasant for both. But I must go now, and we shall not see each other any more. In this life, Satan? Oh, but in another, then we shall meet in another, surely. Then, all tranquilly and soberly, he made the strange answer, There is no other. A subtle influence blew upon my spirit from his, bringing with it a vague, dim, but blessed and hopeful feeling that the incredible words might be true, even must be true. Have you never suspected this, Theodore? I answered, no, how could I? But if it can only be true that it is true, he said, a gust of thankfulness rose in my breast, but a doubt checked it before I could issue in words, and I said, but, but, we have seen that future life, you have shown it to us, we have seen it in its actuality, and so, <clears throat> that was a vision, it had no existence, I could hardly breathe for the great hope that was struggling in me. A, a, a vision? A vi then he said, Life itself is only a vision, a dream. It was electrical. By God, I had had that very thought a thousand times in my musings. Oh, Satan spoke again. Nothing exists. All is a dream. 
God, man, the world, the sun, the moon, the wilderness of stars, a dream. All a dream. They have no existence. Nothing exists save empty space and you. I, I cried, and you are not you. You have no body, no blood, no bones. You are but a thought. I myself have no existence. I am but a dream, your dream, creature of your imagination. In a moment, you will have realized this, and then you will banish me from your visions, and I shall dissolve into the nothingness out of which you made me. I am perishing already. I am failing. I am passing away. In a little while you will be alone in shoreless space to wander its limitless solitudes without friend or comrade forever. For you will remain a thought, the only existent thought, and by your nature inextinguishable indestructible <laughs> but I your poor servant have revealed you to yourself and set you free dream other dreams and better and Satan spoke again strange he said that you should not have suspected years ago centuries, ages, eons ago, for you have existed companionless through all the eternities. Strange, indeed, that you should not have suspected that your universe and its contents were only dreams, visions, fiction. Strange, because they are so frankly and hysterically insane, like all dreams. A god who could make good children as easily as bad, yet preferred to make bad ones, who could have made every one of them happy, yet never made a single happy one, who made them prize their better life, yet stingingly cut it short, who gave his angels eternal happiness unearned, yet required his other children to earn it, who gave his angels painless lives, yet cursed his other children with biting miseries and maladies of mind and body, who mouths justice and invented hell, who mouths mercy and invented hell, who mouths golden rules and forgiveness multiplied by seventy times seven 
and invented hell, who mouths morals to other people and has none himself, who frowns upon crimes, yet commits them all, who created man without invitation, and then tries to shuffle the responsibility for man's acts upon man instead of honorably placing it where it belongs upon himself. And finally, with altogether divine abstruseness, invites this poor abused slave to worship him. You perceive now that these things are all impossible except in a dream. You perceive that they are pure and puerile insanities, the silly creations of an imagination that is not conscious of its freaks. In a word, that they are a dream and you the maker of it. The dream marks are all present. You should have recognized them earlier. It is true that which I have revealed to you. There is no God, no universe, no human race, no earthly life. No heaven, no hell. It is all a dream, a grotesque and foolish dream. Nothing exists but you, and you are but a thought, a vagrant thought, a useless thought, a homeless thought, wandering forlorn, among the empty eternities. He vanished and left me appalled, for I knew and I realized that all Satan had said was true. That's the end of this wonderful little novel by Mark Twain, yes, a misanthrope, that's what he was called, a misanthrope. He had a rather tragic uh, life towards the end. Uh, his last child had died. His daughter uh, was living with him. She went upstairs to take a, a bath because there was a party in the evening, and she promptly died. And uh, I think that Twain had come to believe, or at least he wrote in an essay, that it is certainly better never have come into being at all. <laughs> so much for existential angst. Ah, how can so gifted a man be such a misanthrope? How can he not? <laughs> oh, yes, it is better to sleep, yes. As Samuel Beckett would say, you know, they are sleeping. Let them sleep on. I watch them on TV. I'm one of those 
who needs to wake up as well. If anything is utterly absurd, insane, and ridiculous, it is what we are uh, looking at now, today. Uh, I hope, uh, well, most of the people I know are just suffering because 49ers lost the game. That's a better a better grief, a better sorrow than what we are seeing are, I guess, rulers, our elites, the people that run things. What we see them becoming uh, is beyond foolishness. Uh, as I say, I run away, I run away, I go to Turner Classic Movies, TCM on cable channel, right, TCM. It's just, it's just, uh, well, the visions of the filmmakers are sometimes more interesting than the visions of reality. If uh, Donald J. Trump is reality, I like to look at the portraits of the past uh, filmmakers. Uh, they see through a glass darkly, and sometimes there are reflections in a kind of mirror, a fun mirror, all twisted and out of shape. Uh, you know, the past as the artist imagines it was. Reductive stories and ideas about cultures, about social structures and human progress. They, they put cave dwellers into caves and, and and make them create nuclear families. Uh, saw a movie the other day about Victorians who didn't know what sex is all about. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think sometimes uh, filmmakers, today's filmmakers, are as innocent as human beings have ever been, uh, uh, they just, they just, uh, they just give up and and uh, go immediately into visual effects. And it's just such fun to blow up things and not to think. Uh, <laughs> they aren't even a thought. These guys, fortunately, some of the writers, some of the screenwriters. Uh, are sometimes, well, not as convincing as our literary lions, but as interesting. I uh, worship the, what is that, the mediums, the mediums, the videos, the screens, TV. Uh, I think, I think I imagine that there is some human depth that there is some nuance, uh, human feeling, passion, ecstasy, uh, some profound insights there somewhere. Uh, I think the words stay warmer longer, the books. But you can read history uh, so, so accurately in 20th century movies. Go back to the early, early films uh, the what is that the the first the first little funny uh, pictures I always think of Charlie Chaplin as the 
the first pictures. And of course, he's not. He's not. I, I love Marie Dressler. I watched her this morning in a movie called Emma. I just love her. She and Wallace Beery. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we see on the screen what some filmmaker somewhere thought was the great moment, the decline and fall, hope and resurrection, all the things that a human spirit can bring into being. Of course, a lot of it is, you know, flash for cash, trash and trauma. Uh, lovely ladies, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking of Hedy Lamar for some reason this morning. Anyway, uh, I think that today, as I say, none but the lonely heart is the one that I would pick or recommend. Uh, it's uh, in black and white, 1944, and it's uh, Clifford Odets, the left-wing playwright. He was so famous in the 1930s. He did the screenplay for None But the Lonely Heart. It's a update title, Tchaikovsky music. Uh, <laughs> Jane Wyatt plays the cello. And uh, she's, what is that? Uh, she's the woman who's completely and utterly capable of uh, love without any, any, what is that? any conditions. She simply will love him uh, no matter what happens, what he does or doesn't do. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful character. Clifford Odets imagined the perfect woman. Yes, he was blacklisted at some point and his politics, of course, are part of his uh, history of our progressive culture. It's a memory gem, this movie. It affected me deeply as a child, and today I I look and I know it's a soap opera, even a melodrama, but it holds up emotionally. I can still watch it in 2020. I'm 86, and only a few of the black and white films of the 30s and 40s stay deep in my memory. Dead End comes to mind, right? Dead End. Uh-huh. I have pages and pages about Dead End. I I wish I had time for them. Uh, I just don't know. I just, well, I just don't know. I just, well, I think I better tell you the rest of None But The Lonely Heart, these little notes here, because you might just have time to watch some of it. Uh, it's basically, uh, well, it's a melodrama, as I said. Uh, and uh, Ethel Barrymore goes to prison. <laughs> She's the mother of Cary Grant, right? She tries to save him. She sells stolen goods to give him a future. <laughs> She's pinched. That's the word Cary Grant uses when he learns his mother's been arrested. Ernie Mott is his name. Cary Grant's most serious role, 
amazing to see him as a, uh, well, tragic or at least pathetic actor. The movie's set in Liverpool, and it's actually Cary Grant's actual birthplace. It's another great gift from the British theater, all this strange truth actuality. Uh, the British theater tribe is everywhere in the 20th century movies. Cary Grant's birth name was Archie Leach. <laughs> I, I will repeat that. Archie Leach, he was born, and I kid you not, yes. I wondered if Clifford Odets knew that. <laughs> anyway, he became, of course, the elegant and sophisticated movie star, Cary Grant. He was only a poor boy from Liverpool, just like Ernie Mott. And Cary Grant's real-life mom ended in a home for the mentally disabled. Oh, gosh, that's the story of Charlie Chaplin, dear me. So many of Hollywood's stories are filled with tragedy. Tragedy. Good enough for a movie. Ah, none but the lonely heart has not just <clears throat> Ethel Barrymore, but Barry Fitzgerald. Always... The old Irish philosopher, he's on hand to comment on human history, on the ways we meet our historical challenges. At the end of the picture, we see the shadows, the shadows in the sky. As my song says at the beginning of the show, drop the shadows out of sight. The real, uh, well, the proper translation of that last line from the German is those in darkness drop from sight. In the film, of course, there's a, a feeling uh, not just of the uh, aerial bombardment, but of the World War II horror that's around the corner uh, it's a hum of fascism, of authoritarian rule, ever ready to oppress nations and groups, groups of all sorts, and of course, ready to oppress free people at any time. Look around. Here we go again. <laughs> what is our fear? quotient today at this moment as I speak. Ah, I say 20% <clears throat> terrified, 22% scared, threatened is 27%, worried is 21%, Fearless is 7%. They're on the barricades with their flags. Reckless is 3%. Those are activists on the barricades. Yes. Fearless. Fearless. I wish I could count myself among the fearless. I thought I did once, but I think of 
I think of the uh, reckless, the people who are on the march as, uh, well, as that Delacroix painting of liberty leading the people, very French portrait. Uh, she's got one breast visible. It's a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> anyway, I hope that history is more than just what we see in the movies. Actually, I don't think it is. I think the movies are a distinct improvement. Fuhrer, king, monarch, dictator, well, here we go again. There is a song somewhere that says, Bye, Pharaoh, honey. Let's hope we can say that to our leader. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till next time, I uh, hope you can go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Back by popular demand, Professor Noam Chomsky is coming to town. Chomsky will speak on Saturday night, March 21st, 7.30 p.m. at the Sidney Goldstein Theater, 275 Hayes Street in San Francisco. A benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance, co-sponsored by KPFA. He'll speak on what hope for Palestine and beyond, the world after 2020. Daniel Ellsberg will introduce Chomsky, and the event includes an opening act with Naima Shalhoub and Eccentric. The orchestra level of the theater is wheelchair accessible. For info, please visit MeccaForPeace.org. That's M-E-C-A-F-O-R-P-E-A-C-E dot O-R-G or call 510-548-0542 or go to cityboxoffice.com. That's Noam Chomsky, March 21st. Go to meccaforpeace.org.